The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm honored to welcome my guest, Dr. Stephen Lassay. He is an environmental toxicologist and analytical chemist who studies human and environmental exposure to toxicants and how those chemicals move through the environment. He has focused specifically on human and animal exposure routes for PFAS chemicals and especially the consumption of PFAS-contaminated foods and drinks. PFAS stands for per- and polyfluoroalkyl substances. However, his recent publication on finding PFAS in commonly used pesticides has led to several states taking action on his discovery. Dr. Lassay has advised and worked with several state and federal government agencies, including the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, and the Massachusetts Department of Environmental Protection on projects surrounding PFAS and PFAS contamination. He received his Ph.D. in environmental toxicology from Texas Tech University in Lubbock. Welcome, Dr. Lassay. Thank you, Melinda. I am curious to know how you became interested in environmental toxicology. So after I graduated my undergrad, uh, I went to Stevens Point, Wisconsin. I got a degree in biology. Uh, I wanted to get into sort of health research. Eventually, I found my way at the Aurora Research Institute, which is this big hospital system in Wisconsin that has a a research institute. They do like clinical research. And I, I was doing clinical research and I came to the realization that while treating people is something that's incredibly necessary, I'm a little bit more interested in stopping people from getting sick in the first place. So environmental toxicology is the natural evolution of that idea. Absolutely. I think that's why I fell in love with dietetics for the same reason that food could not only heal us, but could prevent us from getting many chronic diseases. So we're in, we're on the same page. Well, I'm curious because you've honed in on PFAS, that particular class of chemicals, and I've heard them described as forever chemicals. Tell us how you became interested in PFAS and why we should be concerned about them. Frankly, I got into a graduate program and my advisor, Dr. Todd Anderson, basically said, hey, Steve, there's this new class of chemicals that are getting a lot of attention. This is what I want you to do your master's degree at the time and then involved into a PhD. I want you to do it on these chemicals. Go look through the data and find any sort of deficiencies that you felt like you would like to pursue. And so that's exactly what I did. I didn't even know what PFAS were before I got there. But you look into something and then you become interested. And sometimes having a push in a certain direction is is a great motivator. And so I learned a lot about PFAS. I learned a lot about exposure routes. And I came up with the idea of, hey, I want to do a study. Why grow plants in contaminated soils? Mm -hmm. And so from there, 
I developed several studies. Why should we be concerned about these particular chemicals? I mean, I'm concerned that they don't appear to break down. Yeah. So they're called these forever chemicals. But what's wrong with them? So when people say forever chemicals, of course, everything breaks down eventually. But in organic chemistry, the strongest bond possible is between a carbon and a fluorine molecule. Well, PFAS are molecules that have basically been composed of mostly carbon and fluorine bonds. So you take the strongest bond in organic chemistry and you make an entire molecule out of it. They tend to have a shape and structure and even sort of behaviors that are kind of similar to like a, a fatty acid. But it's a group that has 13,000 different members in it. So pinning down any one sort of behavior is kind of difficult there. The ones people are mostly concerned about are the perfluoroalkyl acids or the PFAAs. So like PFOS and PFOA that you see on like pans and things like that. Those are PFAAs and they're very environmentally stable. They resist degradation in the human body. And um, the PFAS, the other PFAS that do degrade tend to degrade into these PFAAs. So they're not really metabolized in the human body. So what that means is they don't break down. They're not made more water soluble by the human body so that you can urinate them out. They stay in your system and just kind of eventually diffuse out. And the result of that is basically they sit in there for you know up to 10 years, up to even more than 10 years for some members of this class. And as I said before, they kind of resemble fatty acids, which many people know as fats or lipids, part of what you eat and digest. So a lot of their toxicity is a result of that similarity. Granted, anything that stays in your body, you know, has a half-life of 10 years is going to get into a a lot of things. Yeah. So pinning down their toxicology to one thing is very difficult. It also seems to be, you know, species dependent. So while we can do all these nice studies on rats, they don't accumulate them for 10 years. They urinate most of them out within a week. Oh, yeah, that's interesting. I was going to ask you, so in the human body, or I'm assuming mammalian species higher up on the chain. Yeah. Do we bioaccumulate these in our fat? Um, no, they tend to bioaccumulate in things associated with proteins. Oh. Um, PFAS are unique in their chemistry is that they're both hydrophobic and lipophobic, which is what they're used for in a lot of products, right? So like Scotchgard used to be made out of PFAS, right? That That cool stuff you can spray on your pants and then both water and oil just falls off. Turns right. out it also lowers your testosterone, but uh, nobody's too concerned about that, right? It's cool pants. Wow. Well, I was reading in several reports that PFAS disrupt lipid and cholesterol metabolism, yep. leading to higher average body fat percentages and higher cholesterol. Also, exposure is related to thyroid disruption. The lower testosterone levels, as you mentioned, weakened immune systems which is really important especially as we you know live through these pandemic years higher rates of vaccine failures 
some cancers and developmental disruption. And you have found them in breast milk. Yeah, I'm currently working on publishing a paper on some breast milk samples I analyzed for PFAS, although I'm by no means the first person to have done that. But we're putting together, putting the final stages on a study where we got a hold of 50 breast milk samples and correlated them mostly to body weight. So like um, BMI is the, the value of the mothers. And we tried to find other correlations, but it was only 50 samples. So it's kind of difficult with a small sample size. We actually, we found some correlations there that we'll put in the paper, many of which were significant. So were the higher BMIs related to higher content in the milk? So you would think that, and that is actually usually the case if you analyze somebody's blood. You find Mm -hmm. that people who tend to be higher weight tend to have more PFAS. But actually, we found in this case, the women who had lower BMIs actually had more PFAS in their breast milk. That's interesting. Uh, An explanation from that? I have guesses, but honestly, I don't know. Yeah. You had also mentioned to me in an earlier discussion that they pass the placental barrier, yeah. therefore affecting the unborn. And I think there are so, there's some data looking at lower weight in infants. Yep. Birth weights, head circumference, size, uh, length. And we found some correlations too. Similarly, like basically, if you take certain PFAS and you have more of them in the breast milk, we found that there was some associations sometimes with smaller birth weights, longer babies, shorter babies. It really was dependent. But once again, we had a pretty small sample size. So genetic variation probably mm-hmm. plays a lot more in there than studies with larger sample sizes. But studies with larger sample sizes have found these correlations with a variety of PFAS. What about occupational hazards? So were there some women in particular occupations that tended to have higher levels? So in that study, we had limited information and half of the women were homemakers, which is great, but it doesn't tell you very much about what they're exposed to or what they've been exposed to in the past. But for the most part, we didn't find any groups that had any differences there. Although we had one outlier sample that had breast milk concentrations hundreds of times higher than other samples that we had. And the uh, the occupation of the woman and her husband were, they were farmers. Well, you know, as a dietitian, I'm listening to this and I I know breast milk to be the absolute gold standard of feeding infants. I mean, it is so far superior to formula for so many reasons. And we're learning more every day about how breast milk interacts with bacteria in the gut. We learn about the strong immune function that it passes on to children. So I feel like it's important for any of our listeners to realize that A, we're all contaminated with these compounds, but B, this is not a reason not to breastfeed. It is a reason to clean up the environment. Would you agree? Oh, of course. 100%. In my developing of that study, so when you were, if you were to buy some milk from the store, cow's milk, it's not really all that similar of a concentration of what composition of what actually comes out of a cow. You know, you get butter, you get cream, uh, you get milk. 
all these different things from the product that comes out of a cow, and it's similar for women. And as a result, I couldn't really use cow's milk to do any sort of method development. Well, my wife had given birth to our son not too long before then, so I used her breast milk to develop my extraction techniques. And in doing that, I found out just how much PFAS was in my wife's breast milk. And as you can probably tell, I'm not sounding like I was especially happy about finding that out. But by no means did I stop my wife from breastfeeding because all kinds of food is contaminated with PFAS and uh, the the good far outweighs any sort of bad that could be there. Right. Tell me, I'm sure our listeners are wondering, so where are we going to find most of the PFAS compounds in our food system? Are there some... Are there some products that just rise to the top with regard to contamination? From what I've seen with the research that's done on it, and there really has not been enough. There has not been enough research sampling stuff from supermarkets and products. There's been some from Europe, and all these studies that I've read in the past have been done in the early to mid-2000s and then in the the early 2010s. And a lot of them came to the conclusion that, wow, there's PFAS in a lot of our foods. The concentrations aren't anything to worry about. Well, since then, we've reduced the the reference doses and the tolerable daily intakes that we believe to be regulatory values that you should be concerned about. We've reduced them by sometimes factors of a thousand. So a lot of these studies that say that they're nothing to be too worried about, well, we reduce those values by a factor of a thousand. So now they're something to worry about. Right. I would I would say that a lot of a lot of the foods that have higher concentrations tend to be associated with processed foods, things in nonstick packagings. I mean, famously, like a, a lot of PFAS was found in fast food containers. Although I'm sure that goes further than just fast food containers, just anything that is treated to, in a food sense, to be non non-stick would be something I would categorize under of concern. Granted, you know you have to actually test and find out, and a lot of these companies aren't upfront about if these products are in there. But yeah, packaging, non-stick, right, stuff okay. like that. Well. We are halfway through, so let me take one break and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, and we are speaking with Dr. Stephen Lassay. He is an environmental toxicologist, and he has focused his research specifically on PFAS compounds. Now, Dr. Lassay, I was reading your dissertation in preparation for our interview, and in that document, you wrote that the manufacturing of PFAS actually began in 1949. So we've got a historical use of PFAS. When did we suddenly become aware of their harm? Honestly, it's hard to pin down, but there's like blood samples and various manuscripts from like the 70s. But uh, I would say that we were really knowledgeable about how harmful PFAS could be. It's probably in the 90s and early 2000s. Was there any effort made by the agencies that are designed to help us. And I'm thinking about 
our tax dollars funding our governmental agencies, such as the Environmental Protection Agency, the Food and Drug Administration, when question or when concern first rose, did any of those agencies try to intervene and say, we've got to stop manufacturing these compounds until we know more? Or was it just swept under the carpet? So for the most part, what was done for essentially 20 years was significant new use rules. So basically, I believe it was the EPA put in this significant new use rule that basically says that if a product starts using PFAS or a new product is using PFAS or is importing PFAS from anywhere, they have to notify the EPA. There's issues with that. Uh, A lot of times products might be brought in or manufactured overseas that use PFAS and the manufacturer may have no idea that it's even happening or that uh, contamination can be happening from products overseas, or it might just very well be in those products overseas that they're made over there and it's not included in these significant new use rules and maybe even the manufacturer's not even aware it's in there. Uh, I think that is going to start changing hopefully soon here. Uh, I know that the EPA has been updating that significant new use rule pretty regularly now, but as far as like ban on it in any products, well, there's there's uses where PFAS is kind of necessary. Um, although that's the claim is that it's kind of necessary. Honestly, I don't really know. But uh, I know like your phone on the inside, a lot of the uh, the wiring and chips are sprayed down with the PFAS to stop them from shorting and to increase their shelf life and things like that. Mm-hmm. So. It is. It would appear that PFAS are still a necessary component to a lot of the products we use and enjoy. I don't know if that means that it should be applied to our food. And I would argue that that would be probably on the list of things that it doesn't need to be used in. Right. Well, you are a lead author in an article that was published in the Journal of Hazardous Materials Letters, Targeted Analysis and Total Oxidizable Precursor Assay of Several Insecticides for PFAS. So this gets to the fact that the farmer's breast milk that you analyzed had high levels of PFAS. We don't know if that particular farmer was using pesticides, but the fact that PFAS is used in pesticides and that it's not on the label of listed ingredients. It it falls under that inert ingredient category, which are proprietary ingredients in a product. What can you tell us about your research on PFAS being in many common pesticide products? Okay. So I'll start with just uh, stating basically how, how I made the discovery. So as I said before, I wanted to research plant uptake of PFAS. So I got a hold of a greenhouse and started growing plants in contaminated soils. Well, the first time I finished one of those studies, I found that my controls were contaminated with PFAS. And I thought to myself, well, I'm not that bad of a scientist. I couldn't have contaminated the soil I grew them in. And sure enough, I tested the soil and 
there wasn't any significant concentrations of PFAS in there. So then I started to look around at the greenhouse, the site, and I went out and I tested everything. I tested other plants peoples were growing there. I tested, I wiped down surfaces. I got some soil from outside because the site was a greenhouse, but also a field. And I found PFAS in everything and in concentrations that were kind of worrisome. So then I went and uh, looked at basically eventually whatever would was applied to the fields. And I got a hold of some pesticides that were applied there. And I found PFAS in six of them. And I found evidence of other PFAS outside the ones I tested for in um, two two of those products as well. So I found PFAS in seven out of 10 of the products. So I I published that paper and then I completed that work. And I uh, also in my dissertation, I made some models for predicting plant uptake of PFAS. So these models take a soil concentration and a carbon concentration in that soil as well and then they can predict how much PFAS ends up in the plants shoots and roots this is kind of used as a risk assessing tool and I developed it off of basically at the time all the published data on plant uptake of PFAS and then eventually I published the research on those pesticides and uh, yeah my life has been a bit of a whirlwind since I'm sure. So what are the roadblocks to protecting the public, do you think, to exposure? You had mentioned before, and I didn't address it, but the inert ingredients aspect. I don't know if what I found was an inert ingredient, a contaminant of any kind, or something that was intentionally added in some other way. I don't know that, and that information is not available. Some people would argue if the inert ingredients were public information, we could know these things. Well, I don't know what the inert ingredient list look like. Does it? Does the inert ingredients say PFOS added, or does it say surfactant mix 7? I don't know. I really don't know. And if it's being added to the products in it unintentionally so through some sort of contamination through manufacturing equipment or something like that well that wouldn't be included in any inert ingredients list so i don't know if getting access to those inert ingredients lists would do anything and uh i think that largely testing of food products for pfas concentrations is probably something that we should have been doing a lot more in the United States. And it's something I would like to do, but don't really have the capacity to do right now. Right. Well, it seems to me from what you're telling me that the food itself, say it's a plant, it can take up the contaminant from the soil or the water, Mm -hmm. but there's also the plastic packaging. So many of the plastic containers are the PFAS is part of that formulation. And uh, a lot of a lot of containers, a lot of these plants are, well, these fruits and vegetables are shipped in are these waxed cardboard containers. Well, they're, they're waxed. I don't know what else could be in there, but I can tell you that 
other waxes have that have been tested have found PFAS in them. I haven't been able to test any of the packaging, but I'm sure that's something that should be looked into. Right. Well, I want to make sure that our listeners know about your excellent website because you've got some very consumer-friendly blog pieces where you're following this research, and it's simply www.lasseeconsulting.com, and that's spelled L-A-S-E-E, and I will provide a link in the show notes. I also have an excellent press release from the Center for Environmental Health which talks about a new study that shows PFAS chemicals migrating into products from fluorinated plastic containers. So, you know, I think one of the most important messages that I would like to give our listeners is if you can, when you can, avoid processed foods for many reasons, but also choose products in glass as often as possible rather than plastics. And it's becoming more difficult to do so but when you can do that, what else do you want our listeners to know? I mostly want your listeners to know is that many studies have been done to estimate the PFAS exposure routes in humans, right? So adults and kids, and most of them find that around 90% plus of a daily exposure for the average citizen to PFAS comes through their mouths. So meaning food they eat water they drink, and incidental ingestion of non-food products like dust. And right. that results to 90 plus percent of a person's daily exposure to PFAS. So it's important to limit what gets into your food. And a lot of that can be put there intentionally. A lot of it can be contamination, uh, environmental contamination through the soil, through the water, you know, whatever leached out from some sort of contamination site or manufacturing plant. Well, I was looking at the paper where you found the PFAS in pesticides. And I know that these formulations may change over time, but it seems to me if I was interpreting it correctly, that it's the synthetic pesticides that are going to contain these compounds, not the compounds that are rarely used in organic food production. Would you agree? When I produced that paper, I would say that I agreed with that statement, but I've since talked to some people. So there are some pesticides, organic pesticides that are produced by, they're basically bacteria and they're organic pesticides that kill nuisances, but they're grown off of things like fish meal and stuff like that. Fish are known to have issues sometimes with PFAS contamination. So these bacteria are grown off of fish meal and end up with PFAS in them. Wow. So, yeah, <laughs> wow is right. Uh, I wouldn't have thought of that, but that's what it was tracked down to. And uh, yeah, I don't, it's, it's hard to say. What I can really say is that products should be tested. You know, PFAS ends up everywhere. Uh, it's, known as ubiquitous, right? Meaning it's all around the world. Very rarely can you test like a soil concentration and not find PFAS in it. So oh. yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a problem. It is. Well, thanks to researchers like you, you are pulling back the curtain on these products and hopefully we can see changes in formulation requirements and stronger regulations, I think. Anyway, we've got to close because we are out of time, but I want to thank our listeners for joining us. 
Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemelgarn for KOPN in Columbia, Missouri. But most of all, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Stephen Lassay. He is an environmental toxicologist and an analytical chemist. You can read more about his work at his website, which is www.lassayconsulting.com. And that's L-A-S-E-E consulting.com. Thank you so much for your time today and your important research. Thank you, Melinda.